Paul, Giles, I've just completed an experiment which could revolutionise the whole podcast. Richard, what have you done? What have you done? I'll show you. It recognised Paul. It recognised him. The fool. The stupid fool. You're, you're scared. What can it do? Nothing yet. This creation is called, I understand, a Dalek. It knew who you were. It sounds ridiculous, but it did. Not that ridiculous. Perhaps it's a Missing Episodes or Big Finish fan. Now, look at this. It responds to orders. Speed up the audio. Now, slow it down. Play our theme tune. Stop. You see? Well, just think what this could do for the editing process. All those endless hours of removing ums and ers, mainly my own. Hmm. Our announcements in forums, on Twitter and Facebook, dozens of hours, Paul. It may even supply the end to all these podcast problems. What? Even the host? Yes, it, it will end the podcast's problems because it will end the podcast. I am your editor. It... it spoke. Giles, did you hear it? It can actually talk. It can do many things, Richard. But the thing it does most efficiently is exterminate podcasts. I am It destroys them editor. without mercy, without I conscience. I am your editor. It destroys I them utterly, completely. Editor. It destroys them. I am them. your editor. I am your editor. Hello and welcome to Something Who Podcast, episode 30. And after the excitement of a special guest last time, it's back to our classic format. In this episode, we're looking at two of Doctor Who's Dalek stories, with the second Doctor's debut in Power of the Daleks, followed by the 11th Doctor story, Victory of the Daleks. But I can sense something a bit different about my two co-hosts. Could it be the, the sweet aroma of fame? Fresh from his outing on Juggernaut podcast Radio Free Scarrow, and having taken the internet by storm during lockdown, surely only weeks away now from the next Missing Episodes podcast, it's Paul! <laughs> oh, um, me, sorry, yes, okay. Yeah, hello. And uh, meanwhile, also joining us is the star of National Radio and acclaimed author of A History of the Universe in 21 Stars and Three Imposters, hello Giles! Hello. Yeah, I'm very grateful not to be introduced by the sound of a rutting red deer stag this time. Well, my daughter was at the dentist the other day and she said to me, you know, that, that guy you do the podcast with, is he called Giles Sparrow? And I said, yeah. She said, well, I heard him while, you know, while I was in the dentist's chair talking about his new book. So there you go, uh, fame yeah, indeed. Fame at last. <laughs> Dental radio. But she thought you'd made him up before then, didn't she? <laughs> 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 Were they using me as an anaesthetic? Yeah, yeah. Uh, but I guess Radio 4 must have been the absolute um, zenith. 
Uh, yes, yes, it, it probably. Uh, yeah, no, Steve Wright, absolutely. No. Getting interviewed by Steve Wright. I've got to be, <laughs> got to be honest. Uh, and uh, in the afternoon. Yes, at least I didn't have to. Um, yes, fend off too many questions about nature and the seasons, which is a bit of a um, curveball I got thrown. But these things happen. <laughs> Luckily, I'd done some homework. <laughs> Excellent. Well, I think before I feel like one of your imposters in, in, in the company of you two, I think we should probably move on. <laughs> and I guess we should we should start with Power of the Daleks. So it's a third story in season four, written by David Whitaker with with help from Dennis Spooner. Well, not simultaneously, but after the fact. Directed by Christopher Barry, and as we said earlier, the debut story for Patrick Troughton. Um so which version did you watch? I took the opportunity to watch the uh, all-new version to animation. Charles? Yes, me too. I'd like to pretend I, I got the audio, the, the, the enhanced MP3 CD-ROM from Nigeria. <laughs> 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 <No, yeah. laughs> Keeping it old school. Um, yeah. No, I, um, yeah. I, I watched the new version as well. I, um, yeah. I prefer yeah, okay. old school. I, I use the DWB photo novel from <laughs> Yeah, well, I, I, I mean, I did, I did see. Uh, I think it was about 1987 or 88 at, at a convention. They ran the sort of Richard Marson original. Con- what's what we call it? What we calling it? Reconstruction, something like that. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, with, with the um, telesnap. So to, to tell you what, this, this anecdote is desperate, isn't it? Um, <laughs> well, I mean, the, <laughs> was that the one I with the very primitive or... computer graphic like types typesetting and stuff on it as well? They did that in Sharda as well, I think, as well. Mm. Mm. But yeah, I mean, it, it suffered both from the fact that it just had the telesnaps one after another and that it was the kind of low-grade audio recording that he'd made, which, you know, was still brilliant, but but not quite in the same class as the Graham Strong mm. um, and, and similar recordings. So, oh, But yeah, I mean, yeah. I, I have suffered through that one. I, I too watched the new animation, so that's good. I mean, it gives us a chance maybe to, to discuss what we thought of that. Mm. Uh, personally, I thought it was a vast improvement on the 2016 version. It was. I haven't... I know that I've seen one short YouTube video with a side-by-side comparison. Some uh, scenes from episode one, where, to be honest, I wasn't 100% sure that every single replacement was an, was an improvement. So that mm. made me wonder. Sure. But um, watching the whole thing, it's just uh, without and just rel- relying on my memories of the way I felt about the original, it, feel, it does feel stronger, doesn't it? Mm. Just like, the general run of scenes, which they've probably only brushed up, if a little if at all, you don't notice as many moments which, which take you out of it where people yeah. are particularly jerky or, or clunky. Yeah. And then some of the most dramatic scenes, it's fairly obvious that they've put in a lot more bespoke animation for yeah. when there are specific movements or emotions that need, mm. need to be reflected. I know the ones they've highlighted in the publicity are the first half of episode one with, with Patrick Troughton, which is obviously extremely important, but also yeah. the, the emotional breakdown of Lesterson. And whether or not they were going to fix on that area anyway, mm-hmm. as in whether they always thought that was something needed improvement, or whether that's entirely because the, or those new film clips give them a better idea of how he acted. Yeah. I don't know, maybe it's a combination of the two. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I remember thinking that episode one was, was really long-winded. I mean, I, re- I remember the bit in the TARDIS seemed to last forever in that original animation, at least that's how it felt watching it, whereas this mm. time it, that, that bit seemed to zip by quite quickly. So, so I think that whatever they've done with that sort of it was was enough so that it didn't take you out at the moment, as Paul's saying. I think I think it was I think it was good enough that it it sort of felt like you were 
watching some approximation of the original and, and, and so yeah that seemed to go by pretty quickly for me yes i think i've only watched the i must have watched the color version of the animation probably when the when the original version came out and i think this is certainly the most absorbed i have been where i've been able to take myself away from the thing of watching an animation and judging well how well is this done and just just enjoy it as the story partly by watching it in black and white anyway you know although i can't pinpoint particular things that they've changed because uh, i'm not familiar enough with the old version yeah i definitely think it's a, a great improvement mm. so it just felt felt right to me i think the sound's fantastic i mean it, you'd never guess that it was recorded off the telly no 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 um... no they've really i don't know I don't know if Marquez is continuing to develop new techniques, but this and, and Fury from the Deep, you, you just don't think about it for a second, do you, that you're not listening mm. to the original. Mm. And indeed, it's better than a lot of existing stories. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, true. From back in the day. The only tiny little niggle, and I, I don't know if it's Charlie's mentioning it, but old Charlie Norton, <laughs> bless, his, bless his little perfectionist socks, can't help meddling, can he? And he's cut out 16 seconds, because that's his thing, isn't it? That's his trademark. Right. It's like his signature. Yeah. <laughs> uh, wh- wh- which were they then, Paul? Do you not know? Midway through um, Trousers and Shenanigans in part one, he does a little jig. It's the first time he gets a recorder out, plays a little ch- tune, does right. a jig. 16 yeah. seconds. And it's not so much that he cut it. It's a very long-winded... It's on there, the version from the original animation, those 16 seconds. But it's preceded by at least a minute, an an incredibly long, rather pretentious essay on why it didn't reach their high standards and why he had to cut it out, and he hopes we all understand. And he won't won't even say... By the way, for for completists, here it is from the original version of the animation. He Mm. says, it was... An attempt was made for a rough version, a rough preliminary version of the animation, which was released in 2016. Mm. I just find it incredibly Mm. pretentious that he won't acknowledge... We all know they weren't happy with it, but don't rewrite history and pretend that that wasn't signed off and released as as version one. Mm. Yeah. It's just... I just find it annoying. Sorry, Charles, if you're listening, but but not sorry. (laughs) (laughs) I admire... Your ability to get these things done, and I actually, and having watched this this time, I really appreciated your direction, Charles. I'm now talking to him like he actually is. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry about that. I do actually think he's bringing a lot of um, nice touches to the framing and the and the, hmm. <laughs> the virtual camera work. So well done. But stop cutting things out, mate. Hmm. So look at it from another angle. Stop being so hard on yourself. It's not like the rest of it looked like Toy Story 4 and those 16 <laughs> seconds were the only bit that let it down. It was fine. It was no worse than the other bits, which you did leave in, of mm. Trout and playing his recorder. So don't do it. Mm. It just makes mm. people walk away with a, this tiny niggling sense of frustration. Mm. Mm. I think with regard to the, the sounds, yeah, but what you were saying, Richard, about you know, watching Richard Marson's early version, I remember that I had, a, had an audio tape from somewhere I got on the fan circuit back in the must have been late 80s uh-huh. and yeah the you know the leaps and bounds that we've come on and you know thanks to the Graham Strong recordings and and Mark's peerless work on yeah. ringing every little every little detail out of them I, I just remember it being a, a fuzzy mess I mean obviously it was a it was a low generation recording anyway but yeah I just couldn't make it make head or tail of any of it at the time mm. how far we've come Indeed. 
It's not much better on the bizarre 1990s Tom Bacon narrated version with this strange first-person script by Eric Sayward, is it? I was listening to it the other day. He says, is it Tom? It starts, yeah, it starts... No, I think you're calling, I'm thinking of calling the macro, aren't I? Yeah, yes, well, that's yeah. right. No, it's on the disc. I'd recommend listening to the first minute, mm. if only to <laughs> prove to yourself why you don't need to carry on. Okay. <laughs> it's, it's strange the way these things oscillate from underwritten to overwritten. I mean, Nathan Turner's scripts of the first couple of audio, professional audio soundtrack releases mm. were clunky and underwritten. And then mm. Eric Sayward decides to try and earn his money by doing it in the first person. And the doctor's like, yes, when I was back in my second... He does this long, bizarre, allegedly humorous introduction to the idea of regeneration, how you never know what you're going to get. And yeah, I mean, it's um, very much like Eric's novelizations. Oh, the wrong tone at the wrong time. Mm. And if it carries on like that for three hours, then God blimey. It is desperate to see Douglas Adams. Mm. I'm getting all my criticism about the way now before we go <laughs> on to the story itself. So I'm going to yeah. criticise the ancillary material. Go on. I, I have indeed run out of criticism. Does anyone want to mention the, uh, the, the new recon, Derek, Derek Handley's recon? Well, I watched the first half of episode one just to get a sense for it. And I think that's quite nicely worked in the moving material with the with, with the stills and the telesnap. So yeah, I quite like that. That was terrific. One one of the best yet. I've been waiting for Derek's re uh, paradox redux for six years now, maybe mm. or seven, and it seemed to disappear in um, in a post omni rumor stuff right. of despond. Mm. Uh, it was either it was either that or the fact that they were waiting on some CGI for it. I heard mm. both. But now it's here. And I do wonder if <laughs> this is basically what he had prepared all those years ago, rather than having started again from scratch. Hmm. But I, <clears throat> I do like these new Blu-ray recons. They're the best of both worlds. They've got Derek's artistry, because he'd already perfected the art form, but um, without those rather bizarre, <laughs> jerkily scrolling um, captions on a black background. Mm, yeah. nice, nice subtitles, borrowed, I think, from the ultimate form of the BBC audio books. But it's terrific. All them mm. pictures, all those pictures, all those little bits of all those little bits of footage, <laughs> and some CGI Daleks and some oh little things animated in the background. As good as it'll get until somebody works out how to um, make all the faces move, and we all shrink from the screen in horror mm-hmm. at the uncanniness of it all. I think this is probably where recons should should peak actually, mm. unless somebody, well, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I like having both of them. I think I, I think I like I like the animation. I guess you feel you feel you get a, a better sense of what the story might have looked like, but I also like having the reconstruction because you get to see the, you know, the, the actual actors and yeah, I, I, I think both of you give, both give you a different and, and equally true view of what the story might have been. They mm. do. I think for me, the the animations have to have some drama in them. If it's they have to go beyond just animating reasonable likenesses of the characters to a minimum degree you know if it's just if it was just as some people apparently see these as Captain Pugwash with cartoon people bouncing around the screen and flapping their mouths when they speak I really don't think it would add anything what you want is that the movement aids the clarity of the storytelling I think Mm, yes in general for some people it's essential for other people it's just an alternative way you can turn off the part of your brain that is being forced to imagine the movement. I don't just mean literal movement, but I mean mm. the progression of the plot yes. through character action. You have to imagine all that with the telly snaps, which means is always going to make it a slightly different experience than watching the real thing. But I think it needs more than just 
showing you where character, you know, coming in an, in an offstage left. Mm-hmm. Emotions of these mannequins need to match what we're hearing, and on this occasion, they've got it. Mm-hmm. They do. So that's good enough for me. There's another one I've watched recently where they don't, where all it's really giving you is the movement and not really much of the the atmosphere. But mm-hmm. I'll come on to that in a future edition. Sure. Yes, I mean, I, I have to say that this is definitely now my favourite of the of the animations of the full stories. That this this new version of Power is definitely my favourite that I've seen. So, when do we first experience Power of the Daleks as a piece of fiction? How did we come across it, and what do we think of it? That's an excellent question. A lot very, very late, actually, in my being a fan. I think the first time I came across it was probably the. CD release or something like that, which was when two thousand ish. Really, quite late. You hadn't read the book. No, the book came out too late for me. Mm. I, you know, I, I was, I was already beat past um, targets by then. Hmm. Like I said, I have a feeling this bootleg audio CD, which would have been late eighties, early nineties, that I listened to. Obviously, I was aware of the story and its importance. At the time, and I kind of I dragged my way through it and tried to tried my best to figure out, you know, what was going on at various points. Sometimes with more success than others, and then yeah, and then probably the CD, the audio CD as well. I'm getting feeling deja vu here, so tell me if I, we've if we've discussed this before. But I might be thinking of making similar observations about certain Hartnells and series some of the later Hartnells in particular on a different podcast, but it was a story that wasn't really well known until the late 80s. It had slipped under the radar. I agree. Like yeah. a lot of the mm. books, that, the stories that weren't novelised early on, obviously that the things that weren't novelised before the mid-80s were less well known. This was one of the last, wasn't it? Mm. And in fact, it was kind of it was trumped in quite a lot of a large number of people by the DWB photo novel. They, yes. I don't mm. know if they discovered the telesnaps or <coughs> they're just... Anyway, they have been discovered. Mm. And they put it, put them together with the narrative, and it just seemed to open a lot of people's eyes. It was seemed to be such a rather nebulous idea, and mm. not so much not well thought of, but certainly not as well thought of as it should have been. Mm. I remember no. in, the old, in the old program guide, it doesn't really say very much about it. Just no. glosses over the plot as if it's n- nothing special beyond its importance as a landmark story. Mm. Yeah, and then its its reputation just continued to grow from there. From mm. I think it was always overlooked in terms of in the you know my memory of perceived fan wisdom at that time was the evil of the Daleks was the big yeah the big Dalek spectacular that had the you know they went back to Skara and they had the Dalek city and everyone knew about that and it was all Victorian and all the things that like appealed to fans and power was kind of yes it was a it was a bit of a footnote that okay it was the they knew it was the story you know we all knew it was the story that the Charlton's debut, mm-hmm. and it involved Daleks, and it, but it was kind of a fairly mundane story of Daleks taking over a you know, mining colony planet. So it kind of merged merged in with Macroterra and all these nebulous early Troutons about which we knew very little at all, yep. I think. Mm-hmm. Because it is a plot that's quite subtle. It's all in the details, yeah. really, isn't mm. it? And I was about to say, it hasn't got any big gimmicks, by which I mean something like the the Emperor Dalek on Skara, which we could all see from the pictures, was must mean Evil's a classic if, mm. it, if it had these visuals in it. But visually, there was nothing in power. But of course, it does have a big gimmick, which somehow seemed to 
I guess in a really simplified pre like the one in Programme Guide, I've not had no idea how they recounted it in, in the magazine or anywhere else, but I mean, it's the first story where the Daleks show any kind of cunning, and they yeah. show any kind of intelligence, or work on any level other than simply blasting everything in sight. Mm. And they, they can, they, they've been seen as strategists on a grand scale before, but only in the when there are millions of them about to invade the universe. And when you think about the, la- the fact that the last time we saw them was the Daleks' master plan, you almost can't get two more contrasting Dalek stories, can you, But in terms yeah. of their motivation and the way they're presented? Mm. Yeah, I suppose the, the original Dalek story, there's, there's maybe an element of that cunning, but of course, because they're in control, they don't need to be quite as cunning. Mm. That's true. Yeah, there's a little there, isn't there? I'm trying to think, one of the things people, everyone knew about power was that Terranation didn't like it. And I almost feel like you were encouraged as a fan to side with him and think you were told Terry Nation didn't like this and or evil because he hadn't written them and, t- and David Whittaker didn't really understand the Daleks and he got them wrong. They're supposed <laughs> to just be yeah. ruthless Nazi, space Nazis mm. and, and they, all this business of pretending to be friendly. Mm. They, you know, they, they're too servile in Peril Daleks. They're, the childlike stuff in evil ruined them. Awful stories, rubbish. Mm. Terry Nation is the only one who knows how to write them. I can't remember when I first came across that idea, but it was prevalent for a very long time, wasn't it? Mm. And I think even when John Peel wrote these, wrote the books, and he got the gig because he was friendly with Terry Nation, and I think he, I get the impression he had to tread a fine line because he knew that these were great stories. But um, I guess he didn't spend a lot of time trying to convince Terry of that. He probably just took the offer, took, oh yes, all right, do them if you want. Mm. And, he was, and he probably said, thank you, Mr. Nation. I'll improve them. I'll fix them. Don't you worry. <laughs> I, I know they're rubbish, but I'll make them work. And then proceeded to um, do them justice entirely in sympathy with their Whitaker's original intentions. Mm. And now yes. that's all forgotten now, isn't it? Now we're living in a world where people think, wow, this is clever. Mm. This adds a bit of light and shade to the Daleks. How wonderful. Would they? I mean, I feel like saying how much longer would they have survived without having these extra dimensions added? But maybe that's not true. Maybe they would have done. Maybe would have carried on having because when we get them back in Pertwee era, they're back to bog standard Daleks again, aren't they? Yeah. I think you can get away with that for so long before you have to do something different. Yeah. So you could argue that after this and Evil, they go back to being <laughs> rerunning the old Hartnell style Dalek stories, and then you get Genesis. Mm. So every mm. so often you have to do something novel with them, something extreme like this Genesis. Dalek by Rob Sherman, that sort of thing. Mm. Yeah, I mean, to, to my mind, that was the frustrating part of the Dalek stories in the 80s, was that, you know, Davros kept turning up, so the Daleks didn't have to be smart. And, you know, I, I was I was always hoping for something that was a little bit more like this, that, that would take it from a different angle. Yeah. It's a weird sort of compromise, that 80s era, wasn't it? Because I think Eric Saved was acknowledging that you couldn't just have the Daleks running around as a big amorphous mass of, of chanting evil. They needed yeah. some intelligent figurehead or spokesman, but he decided that that would be better if it was in a humanoid figure. Hmm. I think there's something interesting about what we see here, where th- there's no lead Dalek. They silently, somehow, t- telepathically, decide on this plan and put it into action yeah. without many scenes of them going over their plan in tedious detail. I think there's a little tiny bit of that, but there's no... The fact that they all sort of, they're all equals and agree on what needs yeah. to be done, I think it makes them more frightening than having one of them setting itself up as the coordinator of this strategy. 
True. So I suppose, I mean, the, the, initially there's one Dalek that's revived. Although, yeah. do we do we think that actually the others are, are slightly more awake than they appear to be in that early stage? Or, or is that genuinely, are they genuinely suspended animation and that first one is revived? And it then develops a cunning <laughs> plan that it passes on to the other two. I have to be careful talking about the de details of the plots because I'm forever missing something important. Well, the um, the mutants. There's there's a mutant running around on the on the that's true there on is. the ship at the time when they've already taken the just stretch his legs. They've taken the first Dalek off. Yes, uh, Lesterson's taken the first Dalek off, and at the point in yeah cliffhanger episode one. So yeah, he squirreled it away. Yeah, yeah. So presumably they're yeah they're dozing, but hmm hmm. So I mean it. It's, it seems to me, you know, talking about the script, that it that it is it's about as perfect a six episode story as you could get. Mm. In that each each episode has more or less the same structure. You know, the, the, there's there's a big Dalek moment at the end of every single episode, and 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 the the tension builds up nicely through each of the episodes until you hit the the climax. You know, if if you're going to follow Terence Dix's ideal model for, for for Doctor Who that 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 naturally at the end of the twenty five minutes there's a there's a cliffhanger and it's in the right place. I mean it, it feels like on this occasion it's worked out fine. You know, none of those cliffhangers has had to be particularly forced. Mm. No, no very very nicely structured. Yeah. It's very it's clever isn't keeps it? Keeps on raising the stakes at every every cliffhanger. It's just beautifully done from that point of view, isn't it? That they've they've the tension gets higher and higher, and then we don't actually get the Daleks off the leash, and as as Paul said, you know, like just going all guns blazing, like just going around shooting people until until episode six. They're they're constantly holding back. But you know it's coming because you've seen all the other stories, so you know that that's mm. what you're building up towards, and that tension's almost unbearable. Mm. Mm. And so you know, Whitaker's very clever here. I mean, he could easily have written a pastiche of the early ones. But mm. he was presumably aware that, or you know, that that had been done. What's the point? I mean, he wrote all the comic strips. He could have written something in that style, a big mm. outer space space opera. But he said, does something completely different. We get this rather. I mean, the main plot, the A plot that gets most of the time, is the political situation. Oh yes, it's, yeah, it's it? like Enemy of the World in that it's a like, political thriller with sci-fi trappings, which seems to be which what is, he's interested yeah. in. He's just very good at the character work and. Yep. Yeah, I was you going to compare it, it to it. Think about his historicals and so on as well. It's... I was going to compare it to Enemy because, almost in the sense of it being underrated, I know that it was slightly different because with Enemy, people, we had one episode which everyone hated, which, <laughs> which dragged its reputation down even further. But I think, again, here it's because until you see and hear it, well, don't have to see it, but you know what I mean, until you can get into the detail and go beyond just a, a vague outline of the, the plot, it doesn't, doesn't come off the page, does it? Hmm. Yeah. So the, yeah, the two plots, two plots interweaving, and then meshing at the end, the uh, political intrigue and the the linear progression of the Daleks' rise to power, which although, <laughs> which you must, this seems inevitable, but as it's going along, you you're engrossed by seeing how they're doing it, how they're manipulating hmm. the humans, and then yes, then they mesh with inevitable consequences. What else is there? There's uh, uh, some nice character work. I think the Lesterson plot um, yeah. mm. deserves mention. It's possibly the C plot there. 
Yeah. Yes, he, he sort of starts out absolutely certain of what he's doing. And then there's a, there's a couple of seeds sown in the middle of the story, but he kind of keeps soldiering on thinking that it's still okay, and then suddenly he realises it's all... I think it's one of the best character arcs in, in Doctor Who. I mean, yeah. I don't remember anything in Genesis the Daleks, any particular character having an arc that's as clear as Lesterson's. Hmm. And it really pays off right to the very end, when just when you think his arc's over, hmm. and um, he's going to get his comeuppance or whatever, or his dramatic, ironic death... There's an extra twist, which is that he goes so completely mad that he's almost happy that the Daleks have won because they're the, they are the, the future. Mankind's had his day. These are the superior beings. We've heard so many times Daleks are the superior beings, but only from mm. them. They tell us that. But to have a human, admittedly, one who's gone a bit loopy, mm. tells the same thing is genuinely chilling. The other plot that we're missing, of course, is the is the whole... Does that relegate it to the deed plot? The Doctor... You know, the Doctor <laughs> The Doctor's regeneration okay. and proving that he is who... It's the well, Uber like, plot. You know, he has to, because, yes, yeah. Because that's the story's main gimmick, and mm. the one, for years, the only thing anyone remembered about this story. I, I feel like it almost, you know, floats above everything else. Mm. Um, mm. But it, it does it very nicely. I was very surprised watching it this time that they really didn't spend as long on the TARDIS stuff, and it was it was all pretty much done within five minutes, and then, then, they're, out on yeah. the, then they're out on the planet's surface, and OK, there's still... Ben still has his suspicions, certainly, but but we're off and running, and that was something mm. I I think I'd always thought. Oh God, there's about half of half an episode yeah. of Faffy Man in the, in the TARDIS before yeah. yeah before we get out, and the Doctor spends forever looking through that trunk. And um, <laughs> I think a lot of subsequent regeneration stories have consciously or unconsciously tried to echo this, thinking, mm. oh, the Doctor is never on top form immediately. He always goes a bit mad and is a bit ineffectual, mm. Mm. and his companions have to take the strain for a, look for a while. But they kind of over-egg it here. Mm. Yeah. Although, he's being, although he's acting slightly manic, mm. hyperactive, he remembers he's the Doctor. He never stops being the Doctor. From the moment he arrives, mm. he's on the case of the, uh, the A, B, and C plots mm. in a way that you don't get in Spearhead or Robot or... Castrovel or Christmas Invasion or whatever mm. or Twin Dilemma mm. yeah all of them <laughs> <laughs> so I can't this is cleverer it's also it's a very it's another spin on the side you know the, the manipulative because the, the you know the cliche the cliche Chatton Doctor is the is the clown as it were and the, the one that we inherited in in, the, in all the in all his returns <laughs> and is who ironically I think the you know the the doctor that we see in seasons four and six probably more than more than season five. I think you know the base under siege stuff. He tends to be a bit more. Although uh, is Tomb end of season four? Remind me. Well, it's a legend. No, it's start of season the first. Five. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Was well, it the start of season five? But yeah, and that's that sort of feels like it's the last time, last you see of. I don't know. Maybe maybe I'm maybe I'm being unfair. Maybe you see that manipulative side of him throughout but it feels like it's there it's it's kind of hi- hiding under all the eccentricity and recorder playing and so on you've got this mm. he's still he's he's teasing i think he's teasing ben and polly with all the oh well the doctor would say this wouldn't he and talking about him in the, himself in the third person and again i always thought there was a lot more of that than there is mm. i don't think he over i don't think he overplays it doctor. no no for no. whatever reason he's doing this mm. it's just enough to to wind ben up Yes, but from the from the viewer's point of view, I mean, we're ahead of Ben. We can mm. see that he's still he's still got the goods. He's True. Still... Mm. Interesting though that they choose to when you have this slight 
meta uncertainty on the part of the viewers about oh is this is this still the doctor and that's reflected in the companions that you then have him taking on another you know taking on another identity as part of the plot <laughs> yeah that's clever hmm I'm not sure whether that was something that was thought through. At what point is Ben won over? I can't remember now. It's, it's gradual, isn't it? Mm. There's not a single point. But they don't drop it. They don't... Whitaker doesn't suddenly forget. Polly's won over first because she's more instinctive and can tell that this person is still acting like the Doctor. Mm. And I guess when you've seen so many weird things, why would this be beyond... <laughs> the fact that he could change things be beyond everything else. But um, mm. I think by episode two, Ben is more or less on side. I think it might be the scene with the the bug in the fruit. Because yes. Yes. Ben is convinced it's just the Doctor clowning again, and when he realises that he was actually mm. doing it for purpose, then we all... Mm. It turns everything on its head, doesn't it? Mm. The thing, the bit where the Doctor's answering them, answering them, their queries with, the, with his recorder, going like once for yes and twice for no kind of thing. <laughs> Isn't that actually a Harpo Marx yes. routine? Mm. And given, given yes. the whole thing about um, Trouton wanting to play it in a Harpo wig, has been one of his various <laughs> various ideas. It is actually from a Marx Brothers movie, that isn't it? I think so. I can't remember Pretty which. Pretty sure I can't remember which either, but I'm sure there's a there's a scene where Harpo's doing that. So. Yeah, I I don't know. I'd love to see it because from the soundtrack, and maybe it's just because I'm so familiar with this, mm. but I don't. It seems fundamentally to be. The Troughton Doctor, I don't know, 80-90% there, quite yeah. quite mm. early on to me. Yeah. I was I was watching it with Mrs. Morris, and she picked up even just from the soundtrack that she thought Patrick was playing it very differently. Mm. We just watched it after Fury. But I think I think it's a combination, really, because his performance does, it does lose some of its sharpness later on in season six. I don't think it's mm-hmm. unfair to say mm. that, is it? Because no, he, was, true. he was fed up with it by that point mm. as well. So if you if you compare the two ends of his portrayal, even if you compare the underwater menace with um, Seeds of Death, there's a big difference. Hmm. But I just I'd love to know if if his facial mannerisms and his physical his movement would hmm. exaggerate the manic side of this regenerated Doctor in a way that perhaps just here in Sandrake doesn't. Hmm. Because when we hear about all the extremes to what she wanted to push it, it doesn't quite live yeah. up to it, does it? Yes, I wondered that too because I because I agree with you. I, d- I don't think it's evident to me in the soundtrack that it's all that different. But 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 as you say, you, you feel like there's a lot there's a lot of discussion about how it's a very manic performance. There's a lot of still photographs where he's pulling some rather extreme faces, a lot of gurning, <laughs> and I think even in those tiny little cine clips, there are a few. But I mean, they're all they're all very early on. Mm. I think that's all in the first quarter of an hour where you'd, you'd expect it to be. So. I'm really not expecting to see very much change over the next... Because, by and large, he's being the Doctor with moments of eccentricity rather than vice versa. Mm. And I think the only thing that changes is the um, cut of his trousers. <laughs> they're, I think they, they're taking in his baggy trousers oh, yes. more each week than he is his performance. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, I thought you were going to have another go at um, Charles Norton there for having uh, <laughs> removed the checks. Oh, dear. Well, you know, the Doctor doesn't even wear his woolly hat in Fury from the Deep, so I'm not finished on people <laughs> taking liberties. <laughs> oh, God, really? I haven't seen it yet, so... Okay, well, we won't spoil the surprise. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I tell you what, what it occurred to me about this story, 
was Brexit, right? It seems to me that that Hensel is the Cameron figure who who doesn't really see his demise coming. Hmm. He kind of understands that there are that there are rebels in the in the camp, but he doesn't really see them as that big a threat, and he's astonished really when when Bregan turns on him. Hmm. And then, of course, you've also got the this thing where the you know the original rebels, I suppose, you know, Janley and her and her bunch are are sort of overpowered then by the ultras with Bregan and his guards who kind of take take over and sort of they're using that as as their means to take to get power. And then ultimately, of course, it doesn't really matter about any of that because the coronavirus turns up in the in the uh, form of the Daleks and, and wipes <laughs> everything out anyway. Uh, and it just seems like a perfect allegory for our times. Mm. <laughs> uh, I'm trying to figure out who that makes Janley, but um, <laughs> Chris Whitty. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, interesting. The thing that struck me going over it was it's it's interesting that they. They went back to Whitaker to do this, and I'm mm. I'm not sure. So so Spooner suddenly. I mean, I was I was surprised. Yeah, um, this is the classic something who lack of research thing. So Spooner <laughs> Spooner crops up as script editor, which made me go yeah. do a double take and think, hang on. Yeah. So is that a courtesy title because he done a rewrite? Yeah, Pol- I polish well. at least. Jerry Davis is yes. If you look at it, Jerry is his story editor, isn't he? Jerry Davis, mm. which is, I think is is the is the standard title for the Times, isn't mm. it? Story is editor it? rather than script editor. The theory goes that, that the main rewrite from Spooner is episode one, and he and he removes some of the longers in the TARDIS that right. were in the original Whitaker script. Okay, although I mean he's he's credited in the animation on all six episodes, so whether he polishes all of them as well I, I, mm. I don't know it's it's just interesting because it it strikes me it's it's very much it's 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 a story that's written by someone who remembers you know who knows their Dalek history as such and and I guess I'm mean, Whitaker did Whitaker write the space travel guide as well the Dalek out of space book or whatever it was called no the um I've got a feeling in my today hmm um but it very much it you because know, it has nods to and both of his stories do because obviously with the you know, in Evil, we go back to the Dalek City and the Doctor knows the way into the Dalek City because he's done it all before. Mm. And and in this case, we have, you know, stuff like the static. And I was just thinking about how it all relates to the... Oh, yes. Yeah, and Whitaker would have been steeped in his... He would have had some knowledge of what the, the canon of Dalek history, such as it was at the time, was that we had the Dalek invasion of Earth once. And so he yeah. seems to be going back and saying, well, these must be from before... Because we have the static issue, and he picks up on static, which goes back to goes back to yes. the very first sto- Dalek story, whatever yeah. we're going to call it this week. Yes, and, y- and you've made me twig, of course, that it, he's only just finished writing an exciting adventure, hasn't he? A, a year before. Oh, I suppose like he that. has. Yeah, good point. So it's interesting that yeah, we go back to we go back to that that static is the is the solution. So in some ways, it is there's a bit of a Bit of a reworking, at least in the solution, to the you know it's the same resolution as as the Daleks, isn't it? Hmm. And I guess that that's the thought that okay, this is pre-Dalek invasion of Earth, pre twenty one sixty five or whenever we're going to say you know if you want to play that game, hmm. because because the colonists don't know don't know what the Daleks are. Yes, well, allegedly, ah, according point. to the advert on BBC One, it's set in twenty twenty. Yes, hmm, th- yeah. I thought I thought so. 
Mm. Yeah, Mrs. Morris asked me, and I told her, and she thought I was ribbing her. I knew it had a. <laughs> I knew it had an early yes. Well, that rather begs the question of whether or not. But I don't think there's a, any implication. This is meant to be like the Vulcan, as in the intramercurial planets. You know, the supposed planet that's orbited in. You know, orbited not the, the intramercurial sun one. Than, yes. Okay. Um, <laughs> the the planet that orbited the sun closer than Mercury that was right that was very much in vogue for like late nineteenth century they thought they'd you know they people kept on reporting that they'd seen it during solar eclipses and so on and I mean given given Whitaker's somewhat shaky shaky grasp of cosmology <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's possible that that was what he had in mind but I don't think there's any real indication. And yeah, I, I remember that it's meant to be meant to be twenty first century, theoretically. But I don't, yeah, I don't think there's anything with, unless there's anything on screen. No, I don't think so. Mm, not that it's survived in telly snaps. Just one BBC announcer. Hmm. And the other thing that struck me is it's it's interesting because obviously this sets a template for so many things. And I was thinking, well, you know, from the colonist's point of view, the Doctor is being monomaniacal about the Daleks. It's like Eccleston in Dalek. For instance, and indeed, I guess Matt in um, Matt in victory when we come on to when we come on to that, the mm. distrust. Yeah. The colonists don't see that there's anything wrong, particularly because we know. I think there's another connection with uh, another similar, similarity with Dalek, isn't there? He he says in this that one Dalek is all it would take to destroy the colony, doesn't he? Mm. Yes. Which yes. is literally what Eccleston says. That which can't yeah. be a coincidence. Mm. No. I think the echoes of this in. Dalek are rather more subtle than they are in Victory. Yes, <laughs> yeah, yes. And that lab scene in episode two with them tinkering with the Dalek, Lester and Janley tinkering around, and that's obviously much, much copied. The suckering scene in, in Dalek and things like that are, all of the same ilk. Interesting that um, Whitaker has Lester and convinced that the Dalek must have a positronic brain. So obviously mm. that's a um, nod to Asimov and yeah. uh, stuff like that, I guess, which is uh, yeah in vogue at the time. And I do like the fact that yeah, the, that Lesterson's his sort of breakdown is triggered as much by as much by the fact that you know the realization that Daleks are not robots, as as it is yes. by the fact that they're multiplying. I hadn't actually appreciated that the two the two things go hand yes. in hand. That the Doctor very casually drops that little bombshell into the conversation. It's partly um, soul deed from Horns and Nymon, isn't it? How many Nymon have you seen today? Mm, yes. <laughs> but with the, with the added aspect of if the Nymon were really godlike mm. and you thought that they had supplanted your position mm. as the supreme life form, which I don't think anybody thought. Mm-hmm. Not in those hills. <laughs> it's almost as much of a handicap as in, when it comes to getting upstairs as a... <laughs> Daleks, oh God! There's a. St- I'd like to see them face off, Nymon and Daleks. Right, make a note. Um, okay, come to a big finish <laughs> box set near you. <laughs> I think we all liked this, didn't we? Yes. Yep. Mm. It's gone from being a story, an underappreciated, under-recognised story, to being one that's almost reached saturation point. We've had, it's been released in so many different formats that mm. we, we might almost be accused of getting a bit blasé about it. Mm. But. I'm not because it's enough intrigue and detail and want to get your teeth into. So I think I will car- be able to carry on watching this when uh, stories with less substance have long since faded from. Mm. Yes. 
and my interest. I thoroughly agree with you, Paul. I mean, I, I think this particular watch has taken me up to that kind of level because I think until now, every version in which I've seen it has had enough imperfections in it that it's kind of taken my attention away from the brilliance of the plot and the acting. And I think this one has enough that's good about it that you, you can actually appreciate all the excellent aspects of it. I mean, oh, clearly, if we got the original back, we'd be distracted by those cardboard Daleks in the background. It, you know, it, it, <laughs> it, it's, it's not going to be perfect either. <laughs> but it, but, it, but it, it, it transcends that because of the, of the cleverness of the plot and, 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 the, and the good acting. So, so yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm very happy with it. I, I, I think it's possibly... It's possibly my favourite Trenton, and and as a result, yeah, possibly poss- very close to being one of my favourite cl- uh, classic Doctor Who episodes altogether. Um, and you know, I, I I sometimes wonder if I'm if I'm actually a fan of the program or about the the whole mythos that's built up around the program. But actually, watching this <laughs> this time, I, I'm mm. I, I was a fan of this, mm. not not just not just the meta stuff. <laughs> Good. Yes. Uh, the villains are all very good. The human villains, I think, and Bregan is very, very good as the, the guy who he, is, who, he has he has an abs- an angle on absolutely everything, doesn't he? He's, He's my favourite. Is that riffing on anything in particular? The way he his plan to get into power, well, by <laughs> by being head of security, he can he can then siphon off some of his guards to become his own sort of private army to mm. to back him up in his coup. That's that has a. Very, that feels very real and very contemporary and very twentieth century. Mm. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. It almost feels yeah. slightly more alarmingly twenty first century as we go to <laughs> ICE and things like that. Well, it's, and um, it's back in you, it's back in fashion, isn't it? Yes. Yes. Yeah. You, I was just trying to think whether there are black shirts, brown shirts. Yes, I suppose that's the, on thing the streets again. For, um, yeah. Um, and then Janley is very interesting because she she's meant to be Bregan's. As I understand it, she's more or less Bregan's lieutenant, so far as we can yes. see. But then she, she balks at the point where Bregan says, "Well, he's going to wipe out the rebels," yeah. despite the fact she's been stringing them along for him. With regard to the plot and things that do or don't entirely make sense, I, I was trying to work mm-hmm. out what the the business with the button planted on Troughton in the swamps to incriminate. Yeah, so it's supposed to be ripped off Quinn's shirt. Quinn, yes, and but, but but we don't see that at the time. Yes, quite why I assume it was Bregan that shot, that did the actual dirty work in the swamp, is shooting the Earth well, Examiner. Quite why he then thought, oh, I'll set, I'll set this stooge up for. Yes. Who is you know who's found the badge? Quite what his logic is there, and I'll give it a pass because. I've been asked to believe more preposterous things by Doctor Who. <laughs> so, so I suppose you know, if if, you go, if we're going to give David Whitaker a pass on it, then I guess you, what you could say is that perhaps he sees an opportunity both to get rid of the examiner that that Quinn has sent for, and to incriminate Quinn by planting the evidence on the supposed examiner, hmm. who he doesn't think is necessarily going to be. All that useful, but 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 he mm. can't. But he can't expect Troughton to play along as the examiner, as he in fact does. Mm. So yes, it is. It's, it, that, that's a little bit thin, isn't it? Well, you'd think that they either want to frame Quinn for the murder of the examiner, or yes. the doctor for the murder of the examiner. Yes. So 
planting the evidence that flight frames Quinn on somebody else seemed like an unnecessarily yes. was conceding. Oh look what you've done now, Giles. <laughs> now, now I hate it. I was going to I was going to give it ten mutants out of ten, and now it's down to three or two or three at the most. <laughs> Oh dear. Yeah, sorry about that. It's the flaw in the Persian rug, isn't it? Yeah, yes. Do we, get the, to un- do we understand quite what the rebels are rebelling against? Because they talk about them as the rebels all the way through as mm. if they have a cause, as if yeah. there's something they don't like about the current. Mm. No, no pun intended. As if there's something <laughs> specific they don't like about the current regime that they want to overthrow. We, we, but we don't hear a list of their demands or find out no. if it's something political or just a personality issue. Or mm. is it something prosaic about the running of the colony do they want better rights uh, or i don't know we don't know do we and, and then when we get to know them we assume that they're just a bunch of ne'er wells but mm. but other people talk about them as rebels rather than as revolutionaries i don't know mm. i guess I, I suppose my observation would be that much as in the you know 1960s of earth you've got three toffs at the top of the of the pyramid, and then you know a bunch of kind of middle to working class people underneath. You think that's what it is? Hmm, could be. Mm. Could be. Well, we should be lucky Bill Strutton didn't write it, then, shouldn't we? <laughs> <laughs> I do. I like the fact that Bregan just yeah. I like the fact he does it human hands rather than Daleks. Like he, mm. he, you almost think he's got away with it. I think it's a nice. Nice touch, because everyone else... And Lesterson's ending is great, as we discussed. I think that's the only thing... You can't blame the animation, because they've only got the clues they have to work with. But it feels like Janley's death is a little bit throwaway, maybe. Or just a bit under... Not quite what the character deserved. I don't know. Maybe maybe that's just because we can't see it for real. Yeah, she 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 ends again shot because she still doesn't believe the Daleks are going to turn against her. Is that is that the the arc of that? Just like uh, Hensel or whatever his name is gets shot because he doesn't believe Bregan's actually yeah. going to go through. Mm. You see, there are so many echoes and levels mm. and leitmotifs. Mm. It took me this viewing to realise that um, Hensel's the same actor as Chin from um, Claws of Axos. Is he? Oh, good lord. He was, bloody aw- he was bloody awful in Claws of Axos, wasn't he? Ah. Well, ha- there you go. That just goes to show. Okay. Huh. Mm. I don't know if I've ever mentioned before how <laughs> how superficial mm. and unsatisfying I find much of the setup of Claws of Axos. <laughs> Come after all the, yeah, after the previous series and a half. Oh, well. Mm. Mm. So good. That's well done. Thank you for that. That's made mm. my day. The only other thing I was going to mention was, um, was I think Peter Hawkins deserves enormous credit considering he did all the Dalek voices on this, and aside from the directorial flourishes, which I think the mm. the, the Dalek point of view shots are a are a thing. Do we know that from the Do we know that from the tele snaps that they did have? We definitely saw the Daleks watching people. I believe so. I can't going further than I believe so either uh, but, but I believe so <laughs> I stop recording I'll go and check for you I think particularly when it's looking at Troughton I think at mm. the end of two I'm, I'm sure I've seen that in a yeah. I think it raises the Daleks well, I mean, we've, we've discussed the fact they're seen as being cunning but considering he was doing all the voices the fact that he manages to get that you know, when they are you hear them choking on their 
<laughs> choking on their submissiveness when they have to when they have to play along and the the contempt mm. you know to to get sort of contempt out of a ring modulator <laughs> takes there's a there's a surprising amount of emotion worked into there and you have that brilliant line in in episode five about why the human beings kill other human yes. beings and things like that it's a good point it's very interesting that it shows things from the Daleks point of view quite yeah well whether it does literally or not we don't know but but it manages mm. to in some ways that you just think well these humans are well yeah I can tell you that in the recon there are shots of from Daleks point of view but of course Derek Hanley may have invented them okay. I don't think he did I, I don't think he didn't mm. I'm going to put my money on this because I can see Patrick Troughton hmm. looking directly into the camera, framed yeah. by a circle. But maybe Derek Handley invented that. Hmm. In which case, we should. Oh, now we're going. Now we're going to have to go off to the BBC well, he's, website. He's painted Ben into the background of that shot. Maybe. Oh, maybe it's from somewhere else in the. Now look what you've done. <laughs> it's interesting also that that Chris Barry very rarely gets mentioned in anybody's list of top directors, but I think his work on this is is pretty good. Absolutely, yes. And we've also in the credits got Michael E. Bryant and Graham Harper as well. So it's you know it's a it's a trio of top directors in different roles. Indeed, and uh, and strangely enough, <laughs> uh, Graham Harper and Eddie Shaw, who later who went on to found the um, to oh the, yes, the Today newspaper. Um, <laughs> of course, yes. Back in the day, nineteen okay. eighties media mogul Eddie Shaw. Um, yeah, both floor managers on this. Well, now you've got me going through the um. The photo, the photo novel on the BBC website, of course. Ah, yes, the yes, the point of view shots are a genuine thing. On that bombshell. And on that bombshell, yes, there, there, um, there's one from Vesno on the, on the unadulterated telly snaps on the BBC website. Brilliant. The Dalek watching Vesno. And back to the studio for Richard Smith. Yes. <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> okay. Well, look. Let's move on to to our second story, Victory of the Daleks, written by Mark Gatiss, directed by Andrew Gunn. From series five, I mean, we, we, we seem to have pretty much concentrated on that on that series for one reason or another in, in, in the stories we've looked at from the yeah. Matt Smith era. Mm, crazy. Um, I mean, you know, and, and obviously, at the very least, an homage to Power of the Daleks, if not a direct rip-off in places... Although I think a story perhaps of, th- of three thirds, the first third is, is is the obvious power homage, and mm. then perhaps it, it it goes on and does other things. And you know, I'm 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 going to say the thing that we always say on this podcast, which is I didn't I hadn't looked at it again after the original showing because I hated it so much. <laughs> Actually, on on reviewing, it was less offensive than the first time. Yes, yeah. As you say, we often say that that we haven't watched things again, but we normally say this is much better than I remembered it. Mm. I thought we normally say, I thought it was just a, a run of the mill little filler story, but looking back on it, wow, weren't we lucky to have fiction mm. of this quality being presented <laughs> to us every Saturday night without fail. Well, it wasn't without fail, was it? <laughs> <laughs> no, I, it's a story that's hard to love. Um, <laughs> I think. Watching it again, then, has it, have you come any closer to working out why it doesn't do it for you? I mean, why yes. it's only risen to the ranks of less offensive than you thought it was? Well, so, I, so I've got two reasons for it. The first is that it's not the story I want it to be. Okay. Because it promises to be a retelling of, of power. 
And I think there's an interesting story to be told about that Second World War scenario and the fact that Churchill is prepared to do something that, that seems uncountenanceable if that well I've, I've made that into a word um, <laughs> Unconsci- unconscionable unconscionable mm. indeed in those circumstances I, I think that I think there's an interesting development that could happen mm. with you know where Churchill loses control of the Daleks mm. but but we don't get that story instead we get right up to the to the early part of episode three of, of power and then it goes charging off in an entirely different direction so that so that's that's part of the reason why it, it, it's not you know going to score high marks with me. The other one, the other thing is, I think the other things it goes on to do aren't all that great either. <laughs> you know, it, it's it's trying to up the ante by presenting us with a new race of Daleks and a whole bunch of mythology, but it's just that's just dull. I mean, the the, the, bit, the bit the first fifteen minutes is good enough to show that the last whatever it is 25 minutes is tosh you know with without the first 15 minutes and if, if it were all tosh you'd, you'd say well kind of never mind but there's enough that's good in that for me in that first 15 minutes that that it makes me even more frustrated that the last 25 minutes is more or less tosh hmm. yeah i mean normally one rule of criticism is that you shouldn't um, censor a story for not being what you want it to be. You only review what you're given. But there is an there is an overlap there. There is a get out clause, which is where you can. It's demonstrable that what that it should have done what you wanted it to do, mm. and that what and uh, is obvious from looking at it that it's gone taken the wrong path. And I think I wouldn't agree that the first fifteen minutes are good. I think they could have been good if you if they were told over thirty forty five minutes over greater length. Right. It feels like a highlights package yeah. of a much better story. Mm. Right. I think the bits in this story that are good fail because of pacing and they're presented, as you said, it's several different stories glued together. If you, t- if you, cu- if you took them apart and told any one of those stories properly, in enough, told it in enough depth mm. and did the ideas justice, then there are the one or two good stories you could get out of this. The power pastiche, I mean, yeah. Um, if you can't do it properly, I really don't think it's worth doing. Mm. It doesn't earn. <laughs> yeah. Any of the things that happen in the first 15 minutes aren't earned. Mm. It's just racing through those bullet points, those, those markers on, that, on the plot line that, that power does in, 60, in six minutes. Mm. Sorry, six episodes. Mm. As, yeah, it might as well be six minutes here. You get, boom, the war's going badly, but no, mm. um, Churchill's gonna, he's got a secret weapon, but no... The doctor realizes they're evil, but nobody believes him. But then it's turned out to be true, and it's bom 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 bom. Mm. Yeah, you don't have time for any of that to sink in. It's almost like yeah, it's been written for people who've seen Power of the Daleks and will recognize those plot points and don't need them to be filled in. But of course, most of the audience haven't seen Power of the Daleks, and even mm. people who do want it to be filled in, mm. I don't watch Power of the Daleks on fast forward because I already know the <laughs> bloody plot. <laughs> I want to enjoy having it unfold and and. <laughs> Actually, being able to believe in things mm. that are happening and empathise with the characters and feel for them as they as the plot takes these twists and turns. And when it's just like going down a, a helter skelter, mm. and it's all over a couple of minutes later, the, mm. the journey and you, all you remember is a succession of blurry images. Where's the where's the fulfilment? Where's the satisfaction? And then, as you say, it turns into something else. Yeah. And as a whole, 
it's not even a story. This is not a single plot. I mean, it's, it sort of goes back to where it started. So you, you feel like perhaps it was telling a story, but it wasn't really. Hmm. Which is just... A series of things that happened. The, yeah. Heightened by this allegedly clever, oh my God, the Daleks have won this time ending, which is, just baffles me. But mm. yeah. Well, the most egregious thing for me is, is the countdown. Because why is there a countdown? I mean, the whole point about a countdown with a bomb is it allows someone to escape. Mm. But in this case, the Daleks don't need to escape. So why do they give the Doctor time to dismantle the bomb? Why don't they just blow him up? <laughs> There's virtually nothing that rings true in this. It's just based on reheated and stale... I don't know. It's just a pale photocopy of, of ideas that worked better in context somewhere else hmm. many years ago. I don't know quite where it went wrong. Mark Gates is normally so much better than this. Hmm. It's... I mean, the the rumour, I'm, I'm not sure we've... I fully won't be speaking out of turn to say that I picked it up from Anthony Brown, late editor of uh, Dreamwatch magazine, etc., etc., mm-hmm. and TV Zone and things like that, who I guess has certain contacts, and well, whether this was just his pet theory or what. But yeah, certainly it's something that I've heard, and I thought, well, it's possibly one of the only things that makes sense, is the idea that this started out you know, as being planned as being a 75-minute or 60 minutes bank holiday special third episode oh, right. of the series. I'd forgotten that. That was Stop. meant to be a kind of kick in the pants to, to bring people on board early in series five if they hadn't, um, you know, to keep people sticking around or, you know, give it another quick boost. Yeah, and the same, same logic as, you know, a lot of what RTD did with series one. You know, like always having, always have a big event around the corner to, to bring people, bring new people in. Yeah, but what happened if that, if that was the case? It makes sense in terms of that there's there's enough plot to fill that, and then quite how it became this disaster. And and we know that there was reshooting for this was block two, wasn't it, of of series one, the Andrew Gunn um, yes, yes, series five so. rather, um, yes. series five. <laughs> the, the Andrew, well, no, they called it. They, they called did it call it series one, one at the time, didn't they? Obviously. Yeah. Another daft conceit. What was, what was that? Yeah. And they'd filmed the Angels two part of first, yes. seemingly fairly smoothly, and then allegedly some some stuff went wrong on this, and there were large amounts of reshoots. I think for both this and the Beast Below, and they possibly had to be saved in the edits to some extent. And I think you know all the other directors or or Lynn people that- ended up doing reshoots later in the block, but. We know that happened, but that mm. doesn't quite fit. Those two stories can't really coexist, can they? The idea that it had to be saved in the edit by making it shorter. I mm. mean, it's obviously, if it was written and or filmed something approaching 75 minutes, mm. which is probably at the minimum length of time you'd need to tell this story effectively. Mm. You'd probably do it in 60, I, I guess, but yeah. I could, be- I could believe they'd cut that match out, but I don't think mm. it was ever rumoured that they had, had it, was it? That, so maybe that was at the script stage that it was cut down. Mm. The one thing I do remember reading that was definitely true, as you say, there were reshoots. Because mm. this, uh, this is only 41 minutes long. and the... Yes, it's very short. And yes, it fe- and yet it feels 10 minutes too long by the time you spend... Yes. This is what I remember being so frustrated by at the time. I was thinking, well, it was incredibly short and yet... Yeah, incredibly compressed, and yet, and yet we had ten minutes to stand around watching paint dry with Bill Patterson at the. Well, <laughs> you you say that. I I actually think the last ten minutes is probably the only bit that really works for me, 
but it doesn't work in context because the pacing of the whole episode is so off. Yeah. If yeah. You take I don't I could probably work out mathematically how long this episode should be. The mm. first 15 20 minutes or so should be I can't quite work it out as a new series format, but that could be a couple of episodes. I have I have my stopwatch going. It's 13 minutes in when the when the trap is sprung in terms Ridiculous. of the whole right, the whole power of the Daleks thing is shoved out the door. The paradigm are born at 21 minutes. So <laughs> if this was a if this was a four-part story, that should be the first half. That mm, should be the first yes. two episodes. If it was in the 60s, that would be the first three episodes. If actually modelling it on power, mm, yeah. And you would all of those plot points I ran through earlier in a sarcastic fashion mm. would have room to breathe mm. uh, if you did it pro- at that length. It wouldn't be <laughs> it wouldn't be too slow. It wouldn't be old-fashioned. This is not paced like modern television. This is not the only thing that the young people today will accept. I don't think anybody likes it, do they? There are lots and lots of people who've grown up with modern television who think that this story is the worst example of a badly paced one-episode New Who story and, and who love the pace of storytelling in the 60s and 70s. Mm. So if that was what they, the fear was, I think it was misguided. But yeah, the first half really... There's so much you could do with that, and and you could... People, I think, think that Churchill comes over as a bit of a caricature here, and Mark Gates is doing his best, but I think it's... You could argue that you don't like this portrayal of Churchill, that it's too soft and cuddly. That's a completely different issue. Hmm. But he feels... It falls flat because there's no time to see him being human. He's yeah. only ever speechifying and pontificating. Hmm. Hmm. So whether you like or loathe the man, you can't really believe in this version of him. Hmm. Mm. It's all just gimmicky. All we get are... And it, and yet, even within those 13 minutes, we get repetition. The Doctor and Churchill have the same conversation twice mm. about the Daleks. Yeah. Well, there's also that weird thing where one of the women in the in the bunker loses a, a loved one in, in a yep. raid. Mm. And, but there's no kind of explanation of that. There's no, there's no foreshadowing of that particularly. I mean, there's a... There's a is that absolutely anything? It's Do we ever hear it's, us talking to or about her husband early on? In yes, it's mentioned. It's, it's mentioned. Near, it's mentioned near the stars, when there's a when there's there's a comment on uh, it's 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 her husband's squadron, and then it's yeah. just picked up on at the end. Yeah. And to be honest, at that point, I was thinking, well, hang on, hasn't haven't we already? So there's been so much incident by that yes. point that it almost feels weird to be picking up at it. Yeah, it feels like, Indeed. well, yeah, but that was half an hour ago. And <laughs> it's ludicrous. And if it's clearly been cut to shreds, but you should then have cut the whole thing. You can't yes. keep the beginning and end of a subplot like that mm. without it looking absolutely <laughs> astonishingly yeah. inept. In terms of the pacing, if this was paced properly, you spread the first part of the plot out until it at the proper length. If you insist that this has to be the story that launches, that it goes up into space, I suppose it would have to, actually. In the in the version we get, it's also ludicrous that this story then becomes primarily about launching a new race of Daleks. Mm. It becomes a prequel or a trailer for another story. It becomes Mission to the Unknown for some epic Dalek paradigm story that we it turns out we never get. Mm. But regardless, something happens up in space, that's fair enough. That becomes the digression in episodes, I don't know, episode three or four and five in the six-part version. Mm. And then when you come back down to Earth, because you've got to know these characters better in the extended version of the opener, the pacing is right when we get back down to Earth and we have the stuff with Bracewell. You can afford to, to slow down here. So mm. the editor has made one good decision, which is to keep 
to keep the ending paced truthfully for, for the for what it's trying to get across. Mm. But it feels unearned because so much of what's gone before was so was cut down to just superficial mm. yes. highlights package. Yeah. And I like I like Karen Gillan in this as as Amy. I think it's one of the stories from this season that she's she seems quite a warm character and I think she's a highlight of the story, as far as yeah. I'm concerned. She essentially gets nothing to do while the Doctor's away on the spaceship, though, does she? I mean, she gets a big moment at the end, so we forget that. But, well, I don't forget that. No. <laughs> I don't mm. forget that she's just hanging around with Churchill, just commenting on things. Mm. Just because companions nowadays don't say, what is it, Doctor, doesn't mean that they're not, there aren't times when they're essentially just performing that same function, but they're mm. witty and personable and we don't notice when they're not doing anything. Yes, yeah, so I agree. From, a, from, from mm. a dramatic point of view, her character is wasted, but mm. I like the performance. Good on you. She's good, isn't she? For someone as versed in the classic series as, as Gatiss, I'm very surprised, actually, that uh, he didn't think of pairing off Amy with, with the woman who loses her husband mm. on, the, on the bombers. Because you'd think, oh, you know, I immediately am thinking, OK, because of Fenwick, you do, yeah, yeah you yeah, pair yeah, her yeah. off, you know, like, like yeah, Ace Ace with uh, Kathleen. Yeah. I, I don't think there's any explanation for any of this other than that it must have been cut down drastically at some stage. And mm. because it's so inept, nothing else that Mark's written <laughs> suggests he could have produced something like this unaided. Mm. Mm. And the allegations um, were to do with the, them breaking the quality of the cameras or stuff like that, but I'm, I'm not sure. I mean, we've had that, that sort of rumour a few times around this stuff, haven't we? I in guess. terms of reshoots, now, what I remember from the time, and if anyone's only researched more recently, maybe you can correct me, is essentially the director thought it was too long and cut it, and that there wasn't enough action, cut out a lot of the character stuff, and then invented, um, and then beefed up all the stuff with the Spitfires in space, expanded that section, and then it turned out to be short anyway, but didn't put back in the character stuff. Mm-hmm. Now, what quite what the thinking was, I think that was the sequence of events, but quite what the thinking was, whether he thought that 42 minutes was the right length and there was nothing that could be put back in because what he produced was absolutely perfectly paced. Maybe he was demented enough to think that. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm quite happy to blame the director for all of this because I see that he, after, he hadn't done much that was very distinguished before and then went back to Hollyoaks and Waterloo Road afterwards. Mm. So, frankly, I... Th- Think that might be more as talents lie, but then um, in that sense, Beast Below has its it has its issues. But as I recall, it doesn't have anything like the issues that this has. I, I think the Beast Below has a couple of some odd cuts in it and some odd edits and things that don't entirely mesh together. But it's not it's not a mess like this is as I as I recall. Mm. I wouldn't normally think that the director had that much power, but I'm sure that's what I read mm. at the time. And then you think, well, why was nobody interfering? Why wasn't Mark Gator saying, hang on, you're, making up, you're mucking up my script? And mm. why wasn't Moffat saying, well, I understand how drama should be paced and you're doing it all wrong, old son. Mm. Were they just too busy? Were their eyes off? Maybe they were, because I was trying, I haven't explained to Mrs. Morris, and I watched this earlier, quite what went wrong with the design of the new Daleks. And um, mm. it's the same sort of story, isn't it? I mean, Russell was unusually visually minded executive yeah. producer he was on top of it, of the way the program looks and directing half of it with his talents as a, a cartoonist mm. i guess moffat isn't as visual but also was just 
seems to have been too busy to keep on top of elements like that. And you'd think it was a big thing, but somehow, yeah. having dedicated an entire story to redesigning the Daleks, they then looked the other way while these things were drawn up and built. Yeah. And I knew mm. apparently when it was far too late, thought, hang on, does that work? And it was too late, but they went with it anyway, thinking, well, maybe it's just, we're not sure, but maybe the fans will love it. Well, mm. it was a brave gamble. <laughs> I, I don't really understand the point of the new Paradigm Daleks no. either. I mean, I mean, e- even if they looked fantastic, which they don't, mm. I still don't really understand the point of them. What, what you know, no, and, unless and, unless they're just supposed to be like the Japanese animated series from the nineteen seventies or something. Where, <laughs> you know, you've got the back, mm. you know, a, a team of five that somehow take on the universe or something. <laughs> Combine into one and do the furry phoenix, yeah. <laughs> I don't think on any level it's justifiable to spend all this much time introducing them. It, it's just like a f- six-year-old playing Doctor and the Daleks with his toys, isn't it? Mm. Oh, here come the bigger, better, badder Daleks. Boom, and they've killed the other Daleks, now they take over. No, no, what's this coming next? It's just childish nonsense. Mm. If you wanted a new design, you could just swap them out. Because, of course... <laughs> one of the problems with the Daleks in the early years of New Who was that every time they appeared they were utterly destroyed again mm, and then yes. the next time but no a, f- a handful survived mm, and rebuilt yeah. themselves in the shadows and now here they are but now we've destroyed them again yes. mm. but no so they got all the trouble of bringing back a handful of Daleks that survived from um, what the stolen from um, yes Davos's yeah. reality bomb mm, story yes. Jenny's End and yeah they've survived but uh, <laughs> well, if they were all gone, we could just just had the Dalek paradigm turn up and say, "Ah, yes. you thought the Daleks were gone, but we we survived because we're something different and special, and we came yes. from a special place mm. where the Daleks look like this." Mm. So it's just it's unnecessary. Mm. It's overcomplicating a story that didn't even need to be told. That's why it's. And then they look awful. You have a feeling that this is unnecessary. They look awful. Their spaceship looks awful. Like <laughs> there's so many, so many problems with Series 5 where they sacked or they just got rid of everybody who knew how to make the program and started again from scratch. So we had lovely design work, lo- nice Dalek spaceships. They'd worked all that sort of stuff out mm-hmm. and then seemingly forgotten it and thought, oh, how do we do a Dalek spaceship? I know, we find a really shiny factory. <laughs> That'll look brilliant. That'll look... It's got pipe work running all along. It looks, it's only one step up from the Invasion of Time where the uh, TARDIS looks like a... Mental hospital. Mm. It's just <laughs> so. It's a bit Doctor Who in the Daleks film, really, isn't it? You know, it's like, <laughs> it's like their version of the TARDIS or whatever. Mm. Has anyone ever gone into much detail about what they they were going to do with these amazing new Daleks? Because I gather Mark had worked it all out. What each of these new f- f- coloured ones was mm. going to represent, and they all had a name, didn't they? Which was made it into. Ancillary mm, material, yes. but never made it on screen. It's it's on the screen, but it's it's talked. And this is another weird oh, thing do they that they, say, do they say yeah it? they they reel them off, but yeah, yeah. but it's but it's talked over. I only know because I was watching it with the subs on, and um, right. and they they mentioned them all. But there's you get it. It's the bit where they patch through to the. They've yes. managed to get the doctor on TV, yes. from the war rooms, and so you've got Amy and Churchill talking over this dialogue that yes. the Dalek is coming out with the doctor makes some gag about supremes or something and showing new paint jobs and yeah. um, but it's just like what yeah, uh, it this feels was to a... me you could probably 
you could probably sing animal crackers, animal <laughs> cra- <laughs> you know, over the top of these things, and it would make more sense than what they actually call them. It's, it's the supreme, the eternal, right? Drone, the scientist, and the strategist. God knows what the. Well, you know, it I sounds would've... like it sounds like Cummings to me. Yeah, <laughs> God. <laughs> I'm quite sure I would have enjoyed a, a nice two-part in the modern style. Mm. Yeah. Paradise pastiche, mm. where they could mark with all his jokes, I am your soldier, all that sort mm. of stuff, all his power references, tell the story of the same beats, but in a different setting, so maybe we wouldn't notice. Mm. Get to know Churchill a bit better, get to know the nice lady, lose her husband a bit better. Mm. Explain, set up the gag with the Spitfires in space so that it doesn't seem like an absolute... Hmm. Ass pull, as I think the Americans call it. <laughs> Is that what they call it? An ass pull. <laughs> well, it's, yeah. a, it's a desperate, it's, it's a desperation. You know, it's a desperate attempt to pastiche Star Wars as well, isn't it? If you, the actual, if you t- oh god, it's, I like, mean, it's yeah. like a shot for shot remake of, and I, I think someone, someone has spotted or heard, you know, or knew knew about George Lucas patching together the the Attack on the Death Star out of bits of, yeah, bits of war movies, and thought, well, wouldn't it be fun? If he then made, wouldn't it be even more meta if he then had <laughs> Spitfires attacking I, this thing in space in the style, you know, in, in the style of Star Wars? I'm sure that was bare bones of that was in the script, but I, I can't believe that Mark Gatiss's fantasy was to pastiche Star Wars that closely. I think that must be the director, which is why mm. he wanted to make space in the script to make it look as much like Star Wars as possible, which it does, mm. even down to. A bit like the original and a bit Return of the Jedi-ish with their, when they go in for the, to the final thing mm. and blow yes. it up. and um, Yeah, anyway. Uh, yeah, I don't know. So like I say, I think a, a decent claustrophobic World War Two story with Soldier, mm. with khaki Daleks and Churchill would have been good. Mm. And, and it could have been f- nice pulpy fun, but um, properly pulpy, just mm. taking out everything other than the, the big plot points and the... And the big lines doesn't make something pulpy. It just makes it incomprehensible. Mm. But then if you you could tell a nice fun story with these shiny Daleks somewhere else, um, in, explore what each of them brings to the party, mm. their eternal stra- strategist, scientist gimmicks, yeah. that, would have been, well, that, would, that could have been fun. Mm. I can't yeah, quite it picture it myself, but I can. <laughs> <laughs> well, it could be like Belbin's thing, you know, um, the, the different qualities of a, t- of, a, of a team worker or something like that, you know, so one of them's the complete finisher and the other one's the uh, strategist or whatever, mm. yeah. I mean, it's kind of the opposite of what I was saying I like about the Daleks and Power, which is that they're all drones mm. and yeah. that they can still work together without a queen. I don't know. I mean, it must be a personal thing. I quite like aliens that don't have a strict hierarchical structure. Yeah. I, never thought, I never thought the Borg were quite the same after they introduced the Borg Queen. You know, mm. like, there's something really mm. threatening and un- unquantifiable mm. about a race of, of mindless drones, unstoppable. Mm. Well, it's arguable the same with the Cybermen. As soon as you get the Cyber Leader, it's downhill from there. Yeah. But that's a, mm. that's a different discussion. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> it's um, one of my major reservations that I always... I've, you know, I've, I've fully hopped on about before is I'm certainly one of those that feels Churchill in this is too cuddly, you know, for my taste. That And mm. and I'm, I'm a bit narked that I believe Mark Gates is on the record somewhere, although I was trying to find the, find exactly where he said it about having you know, a somewhat, somewhat knee-jerk response when asked about this, of, of saying, well, he didn't feel that Doctor Who was the place to address like, the historical 
Churchill. But it's interesting what mm. what based on you know what Richard was saying earlier. That although I've got my reservations, it's interesting if they if they'd let this play out and actually gone into the ethical dilemmas, you wouldn't have to you wouldn't have to go off on anything else about Churchill's real historical dubious bits of his yeah. bits of his record no. or anything like that. All you'd have to do is just take take the central conceit that you're doing Power of the Daleks, but with Churchill as the guy who's found the Daleks and I know what they exactly they were doing with Bracewell and the this whole sending this dummy that they were inventions. You know, personally yeah. I think that's another another plot element too too far you know, really is a bit unnecessary. But but if you're just taking this idea that Churchill is Reagan from Power of the Daleks, I guess, and doesn't realise what he's got hold of, and and how how far is he willing to push it? Yeah. With the Doctor being the other side of the argument, and just just let that really play out, and it would be good, would have been something for McNeese to have really got his teeth into yeah. instead of just doing just doing a fairly stock Churchill impersonation. Wandering further and further away from the premise, and this may not work in Doctor Who, but I'm thinking something like the Darkest Hour. If, mm-hmm. if there's somebody above Churchill, if Churchill is saying these things, are, I need these to win the war, and his cabinet, all the rest of Parliament are against him, or some other figure, mm. if he's not completely in charge, mm. then we might actually sympathise with him a bit more. Mm. There's nothing stopping him achieving his ends r- other than the Doctor, mm-hmm. which is an odd way of, of framing it. Mm. I, uh, can I just mention an anecdote before I forget? It's a very tedious anecdote, but I'm going to tell you. When Amy and the Doctor are wandering around and Amy says, Ah, don't tell me, it's the Cabinet War Rooms. And they have a little chat about, mm. about the historical placement of this, of this setup beneath the streets of London. I remember the fact that I was... When, I, when Mrs Morris and I went to London in 2009, probably, and we decided, what else, what haven't we seen yet? I know, let's go and look at the... Churchill's cabinet war rooms. We went down there, and who should we see but Mark Gatiss? Oh, wandering yeah. <laughs> around, looking very studious, reading every every plaque very intently. Mm. Bought a stack of books on the way out, okay. and I thought, oh, "There's a man. There's a man doing research." If ever I saw one, <laughs> mm. but I didn't go and talk to him. Yeah. So that's where the anecdote ends. Okay. Sadly, my only encounter with Mark Gatiss in central London that I can recall was uh, in a fait manger and I don't think he ever set a story in one of those. <laughs> <laughs> oh, he, uh. he, he was studying something. He mm. was observing human life. He may yes. have observed you. <laughs> he should have gone up to him and said, oh, don't put me in one of your stories. Well, there you go. Writers, <laughs> love, writers love it when you do that. <laughs> Anecdote two is, no, you know, I don't like to plug my work, but I did write mm. a Churchill adventure for Big Finish, and they've... Ah. They, done some mildly interesting things with him they we've mostly we we the writers who've had a go have mostly stuck to this cuddly uncle churchill mm. from victory of the Daleks because that seemed like the obvious thing to do but i'm aware that some writers on that range have mm. gone for more historical accuracy mm. possibly because they felt unable to countenance this lie of, of cuddly uncle churchill and have written um something close to the truth I spent three very happy years at Churchill College in Cambridge, so you yeah. know, it, it can't have been all bad. You mm. <laughs> <laughs> The oblivion continuum, indeed. Oh, yeah, there's too much techno babble. Yes. I, I was going to say that. <laughs> unnecessary, unnecessary. What does that add? Mm. Who enjoys the story more? There's a bomb in you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah again, the oblivion continuum sounds like something that's... Uh, 
ten-year-old would come up with while playing Daleks, doesn't mm. it? So. Mm. I mean, everything's wrong about this, isn't it? Even that stupid, the stupid design of the robot Bracewell's chest when they oh suddenly he's up, yes. Was he ripped like a superhero? <laughs> yes. I guess that's not the intention they were going for, but yeah. no, the direction's terrible. It really is. Mm. It just looks cheap and yeah. It's a shame actually that that they, they didn't have Bracewell narrating a scene where the Doctor decides to go and repair something. Really, I mean that might have been quite fun. <laughs> oh, not not an aficionado of the repair shop. Then. No. Oh, it's him that does the voiceover. I've been trying to figure out who the voiceover is for ages, but yes. Okay. Mm. It, it's quite a distinctive Scottish accent, isn't it? Yes. I'm yeah. trying to think up an equally torturous reference okay. to the character who plays in Fleabag, but I, I can't. <laughs> <laughs> All good omens. Mm. Well, he's a good actor. He is. Oh, yes. But this wasn't the role for him, was it? Mm. Well, you know, he comes... He saves that ending, which mm. you think yes. is too long. <laughs> but but early on, he seems a bit lost. I absolutely so. agree with you on the timing. Just it's just the issue is that that scene is well paced, but the rest of it isn't. Yeah, and so yeah. it feels yeah. <laughs> it feels even worse because it suddenly slows to normal pace. So it feels like it's glacial. Yeah, comparison yep. with what we've been galloping through. I mean, it's it's not unique among one part new Who stories in that respect. It's mm. worse than usual because we have the feeling that it's the bad pacing as a result of heavy editing. But a lot of them, which seem to have been written, filmed as written, mm. have that problem where there's the beginning, they take too long to get going, everything's compressed. So, you know, you've already only got half as much space as the traditional yes, length of yeah. Doctor Who's story. And then you still somehow cram most of your plot into mm. much less space than you need to and have a slow beginning and end. It's mm. baffling how often it happens. Mm. Oh, I don't know. You've got to earn your wind down, haven't you? I think. Yes. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes they will devote a long wind down to a character, some a character beat. And they'll finish off the story in quite a perfunctory way, and then it feels a bit self-indulgent to devote that much space to a character beat when you haven't really earned it in the rest of the story. It's like hmm. you set the writer set off wanting to tell that story. That was the bit they were most interested in. Hmm. But they couldn't do it justice because they had a Doctor Who story to tell. <laughs> but they're they're bloody well gonna finish that, finish it off, and end on their big tear joking moment. Hmm. And it's all about pacing. Yeah. Oh, I'm I'm pompous tonight, aren't I? Sorry. No, I well, know. you know, it's as you say, it's it's why it so often, unfortunately, feels unearned because you have to do, you have to do a hell of a lot of work to tell a story within the forty-five, fifty minutes. If it's a single part story, hmm. forty-five minutes that. That you know will then also de- deliver that kind of emotional deserves that kind of emotional payoff, especially if it's for a secondary character or something like that. Yeah. Fair enough. Gatus Gatus got it right straight out the straight out the block on um what's he called? Unquiet Dead. So the Unquiet Dead, didn't he? There you feel like that's that's a well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Earned Dickens's Dickens's redemption there is. Yeah. Is um yeah. But so, yeah, we're with him all the way through. That's just the equivalent. That's the equivalent yeah. of if it had been Churchill mm, that had the yes. big valedictory moments at the end. Mm. But um, mm. he's just too busy being doing mm. his Churchill stuff. Yes, yeah. So parallels, I mean, I guess to some extent the, the parallels discussion here is is problematic because some of it's forced by Gatiss having used the one as, as, as the template for the other. But I think there's certainly a, the long shadow of World War II, I think, is is part of it. 
mean, explicitly World War Two in victory, but certainly power has its fascist overtones mm. with, with Reagan and his guards. Yeah, you can sort of see what, why Gatiss might have used the World War Two setting because he might have had that in his head. Mm. Well, it's only a couple of years after it happened here, isn't it? The uh, power is, and and that stuff was obviously very current at that time and you know and and Dalek invasion of earth in that relation you know you've got this these things and people are asking quite awkward questions about what what does it take to slip into fascism i guess and mm. are there people that will take advantage victory at the dark this is obviously a much more comic strip version of of world war Two. you know it's it's again this thing we've possibly touched on before about you know the, that we're now getting towards the Dad's Army version, and it seems cheap. You know, ironically, it seems cheap, and it cheapens the the version that, considering it's again the, the Blitz, and it, it rather cheapens the version that we had of the Blitz during the Doctor Dancers. Mm-hmm. You know, only only a few years before, you know, which which felt rather more real. And obviously, we don't mm. get to see we don't get to see many of the characters on the ground. In that, we have a a token air raid warden. Um, Colin Proxer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I, I do love spotting obscure characters. Okay. <laughs> yeah. He was once the re- he was the le- relief manager at the Rovers' return in Coronation Street. Very briefly. <laughs> Back Marvelous. in the day. Mm. Thank you. Mm. Sorry to interrupt you for that. No, Carry that's on. all right. At the risk of falling into Richard's trap of disc- <laughs> of lamenting something we didn't get. You could have had a wonderful claustrophobic story set in the cabinet war in the war office, couldn't you? Mm, mm, yes. Again, it's a completely different story. It doesn't necessarily involve Spitfires in space, although it, great, although it could have. But you've got it's a network of corridors. So I mean, it had a set of base of the story, siege, wasn't? isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Daleks gliding around the shadows, people hiding yeah. in mm. in nooks and crannies. But you know, we don't we don't tell those stories nowadays because that's mm. yes. I mean, perhaps perhaps having fascism. You know, too close to the cabinet war office would have been problematic. But you know, that 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 kind of battle for the soul of Churchill or for the soul of Britain or whatever could have been an interesting mm. way of taking it. Yeah, we're also getting a, a new army of Daleks, I suppose, in each one. Although, of course, in power, it's it's a new army of Daleks that look like Daleks. Yes, um, <laughs> and we sort of start out with dusty old ones in 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 both cases. Yeah, the Daleks live on possibly at the end of power there's that kind of you know the the the, the ice talk moves mm. as the TARDIS disappears we, we I've certainly ne- i've never been entirely sure what that's supposed to imply but it's, it's just more sort of it's not literally implying it's not implying anything literal is it? it's just more figuratively saying they'll never be gone yeah it's not saying so. this I one's going to so. come back and it's not yeah. like the horror movie movie ending where mm. <laughs> <laughs> yes i still want to know what um yeah what that dalek was doing out in the mercury swamp anyway considering the the um, story spent, oh, yes, goes to exactly. such great pains telling us they can only run on static electricity. Correct, which must mean it was added by Dennis Spooner or, or Jerry Davis, mustn't mm. it? Yeah. Somebody mm. tinkering. And destroying in one fell swoop David Witter's carefully constructed <laughs> universe. Uh, completely consistent, logical, airtight world. Gone. Hmm. <laughs> Um, it's interesting just thinking about parallels and so on. When what we were talking about earlier, and I don't think I mentioned it. You said about uh, we we mentioned Genesis and the, the the need to reboot things. There's a very strong parallel between 
power and genesis the more i think about yeah. it, the more i think about it and apparently you know if if terry nation didn't um didn't actually like power he did a very good job of <laughs> of uh, constructing a knockoff of it yeah for um when he did genesis really that it's it's quite quite a you know it's a plot that works on quite similar lines to some extent although the the um yes. the inter conflict among the human humanoids is rather more amped up in that case but there's definitely there's there's similarities there i was just thinking about the different ways you handle you handle daleks and that, you know, once once they've been established, that they become this overmighty threat, and as we as we know, in when they came back in in New Who, they did have to, you know, they were at the point where they had to wipe them out every time they appeared because they were just too dangerous to be left around. In this case, and Power obviously chooses that thing that you disable them in some way that that keeps them from showing their hand until the last episode. I guess Death of, the, Death of the Daleks does the same, doesn't it? Yeah. In that regard, mm. with the power cuts and things on the Exelon planet, and then and then by yeah, and then I guess after that, you've got them bogged down in civil wars and and dancing to Davros's tune for the remainder of the of the their classic series appearances anyway. So that kind of hobbles them from being the galaxy conquering threat that they otherwise could be. Yeah, so da- so Davros actually plays to some extent the Bregan role. Well, he's sort of both Lesterson and Bregan, mm, isn't he? But, yes. But 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 he but he's but, he, but in in the end of Genesis, he's you know he thinks he's got control of the Daleks and he hasn't. Mm. Yes, not the uh, first or the last. It's the Mavic Chem role. I like to think about. Oh, yes. <laughs> True. Yeah, if only as a podcast I could go on and discuss my thoughts on the Daleks' master plan. <laughs> Sadly, that will never happen. <laughs> no. It's a podcast too broad and too deep for the small screen. Okay, I've actually written the closing bit for this one. Cool. Ooh, cool. I mean, I'm not saying it's good. I'm not expecting it to be. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Something Who. If you enjoyed this episode, we've got dozens more. Don't get me wrong, I'm delighted that so many people listen to this podcast already, but I think with the calibre of my co-hosts, and, and their, of course their attendant fame, and some of the guests we have on, the podcast would merit a wider audience. So to please let your friends know about us and, and leave a review on platforms like Podchaser or Apple Podcasts. And we'll come back every few weeks with something old, a story from the original series, something new, a story from the new, Something Borrowed, which is our homage to the showing sketch form. I think plagiarism is such a pejorative term. Uh, <laughs> to bring you something who? Bye for now. <laughs> That's never going to see the light of day, is it? <laughs> <laughs> oh, very good. Should I say goodbye properly? I don't think I need to. Yes, uh, well, oh, right. you'd like to. Okay. Bye for now, guys and gals. Bye-bye, uh, everyone. Dozens of hours. Paul. Sorry, dozens <laughs> of hours. <laughs> <laughs> right, okay, I've got it now. Who wrote this? Yeah. I don't know who wrote it. Yeah. I still want to know what, what the... Um... Oh, that's Paul dropped out. Never.
Uh, he'll be back. He's back. Is he <laughs> back? Ah, oh, he's back. Bloody hell, sorry about that. Don't worry. I, I, I thought I thought it was in a different window and pressed mm. F5 to refresh, <laughs> and it seemed to be F5 to leave the call. Sorry about yeah, that. Don't worry. Oh. Um, <laughs> I'm, now, I'm now slightly, yes, slightly intrigued after your suggestion of just doing a claustrophobic thing in the cabinet war rooms, I know, and being a fan of Dot, which is, I'm not sure if you're aware of it, Ed Harris's comedy set in the cabinet war rooms um, amongst the secretarial staff with a uh, Fenella Bulgar. I'm now imagining oh. I'm now imagining a um a base under siege thing with her and her and Millicent Hillary, Hillary Jones and Myrtle and the various characters of that having to take on the Daleks with uh, <laughs> with the impeccable officer background. And uh, yes. We'll, we'll we'll look forward to you writing it. I well I recommend yes, it's on I think they're doing some repeats on BBC Radio Four Extra at the moment, so so you know, depending on when this podcast gets out, people might still be able to catch it, catch up, and catch up. 